This episode of Gertie's Law contains references to suicide. We've talked a lot about crime throughout Gertie's Law. When you think of the Supreme Court, it's natural for your mind to go straight to murders and terrorism. If crime is the tip, this episode is about the rest of the iceberg, the 90%, which is not so readily seen. Indeed, crime is the smallest list here. Thousands of people come here every year disputing wills. Probate is one of my actual favourite lists. We've been doing them since the earliest days of the court, so from the 1840s onwards. There are hearings in the practice court, which can happen at a moment's notice, when a quick resolution is necessary. I heard one of those matters on a Tuesday, and the election was due to happen on the Saturday. There's commercial matters ranging from large corporate battles. Big corporates, the Leviathans, come to our court because... Our jurisdiction is unlimited. All the way down to small family company disputes. There's a section here which actively manages billions of dollars of people's personal funds. We buy houses. If a house is needed, they've got to live somewhere. Yes, we'll pay it. Cars. We get cars for beneficiaries. And a lot of work goes into avoiding cases altogether. Traditionally, lawyers are very comfortable being in gladiator mode as to we're going to win and this is why we're going to win and it's an adversarial process. We rely a lot on the profession to switch modes in mediation and become problem solvers. I'm Greg Muller and this is Gertie's Law. This episode is about the areas of the court which rarely, if ever, appear on the TV news. But the stories are no less fascinating. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing but the truth. By far the busiest section is probate, which includes the probate registry and the probate list for more complicated issues. So let's start here. When someone dies, they usually leave property, assets or even debts behind, and determining where they should go is not always straightforward, even if there is a valid will. That registry is the highest volume division of the Supreme Court. In the calendar year, that is 2018, the registry dealt with 21,758 applications for grants. That's an average of 420 applications each week. Justice McMillan is a judge in the Common Law Division, and also heads up the probate list. Its primary function is to make grants of probate or grants of representation. A grant of probate is made where there is a valid will and grants of representation are made where there is either an intestacy or some issue with the will where, for example, no executor has been appointed. What do you mean by intestacy? Uh, An intestacy is where a person dies without leaving a valid will. It's a very busy list, so last year 353 proceedings were issued in the list, so that's about one a day. And when you say they're list, they're the ones that come over to you? Yes, so the bulk of the work is done by the probate registry. Anything contentious would come to the probate list. The probate list hears a remarkable breadth of applications. These include the contested applications for grants of representation. Someone can come along saying that they object to the grant of representation and then the file is sent over to the list and then it's managed and then a judge hears the case. The list also hears applications for grants of informal wills. Where the Registrar of Probates does not have power to do that himself. He has power to do that if everybody agrees. 
Under the Wills Act, there are applications for certification of wills and also applications for court-authorised wills. There are applications where someone has lost testamentary capacity, so they may be injured, for example, in an accident and they are unable to make a will, so the court will make the will on their behalf after hearing all of the evidence. The court's role is to establish what the likely intention of the testator would be had he or she had capacity. And then there's construction of wills, where certain clauses are ambiguous or meaningless. The court also approves settlement of proceedings where minors or people with a disability are concerned. Determining what should happen to someone's assets often gets complicated. First, you have to establish that the person is in fact dead. Someone can apply for a declaration as to the presumption of death of someone who hasn't been found. The usual presumption is after seven years, but one case, uh, for example, was the deceased went on a sailing trip with his mate just before the boat crashed on a, a reef. The deceased had telephoned his spouse and, and said, we're in trouble, and then there was this crashing and banging, and no body was ever discovered, but it seemed on uh, the evidence that truly both of them had died in the, in the accident. And so in that circumstance, the court was able to make a declaration that he was presumed dead. And for some families, the time immediately after a death is when skeletons in the closet finally come out. There are questions sometimes about paternity of people, which can be delicate because sometimes the person has no idea of the issue as in it might be something that arose out of cleaning out the house and finding some documents that suggest someone may have an ex-nuptial child. Other areas that are difficult are where two or more people die in circumstances where you can't work out the order of death. Why is the order of death important? The order of death is important because the presumption is the youngest person dies last. So if there are a husband and wife um, and the husband was older than the wife, then if there is an intestacy, the assets, and, and no children, the assets would pass to the wife and then they would pass to the wife's intestacy beneficiaries. In the ordinary course, the wife would inherit there may be, as it often happens today, um, children from a first marriage or a second marriage, so the order of death is important for the devolution of the property and assets of the estate. That's a question that the court must decide. There's a statutory presumption as to the order of death, the younger person dies last, but that presumption only applies where the court determines that preliminary question as to whether or not the order of death is uncertain. Now, you would think in most cases that it would be certain, but for example, where you get uh, car crashes or a suicide, a suicide pact or a murder suicide, the court has to look at the forensic evidence and the coroner's report to understand what who's died first. Generally, um, someone found guilty of murder cannot inherit. It's the rule of uh, the forfeiture rule. So you'll have a separate trial in relation to the the murder charge. And then once that's determined, then the um, executor of the estate would come along and get an order from the court as to whether or not that person can inherit. There's some flexibility in some circumstances, but generally where it's a murder, the murderer can't inherit. Informal wills can also raise complications. I've had one video will on a telephone 
I've had another one where someone changed a will for a person who was very ill and on strong medicine and on the affidavit material there were statements about how the testator understood what was happening. There was it, the will, the new will made substantial changes um, but luckily enough for the, from the court's perspective the, the person who made the will videoed reading the will to the very ill person and it was clear from the video that the person had absolutely no comprehension of what was happening and that application was refused. Yeah, probate is one of my actual favourite lists or parts. Court archivist Joanne Boyd. It's one of our oldest running type of things. So a probate matter, we've been doing them since the earliest days of the court. So from the 1840s onwards, we've got a complete run of um, probate records here in the state of Victoria. So you can go back and look at um, a gold rush one. Redmond Barry's is there. So what happens with the actual wills? So the will makes up a part of the probate file. So that's how we have the will. So that's why I can go and look at Redmond Barry's, which is written in the hand of his associate, and I can see his signature, and it says who he's left his property to, you know, his de facto wife, Louisa, he's left it in, there's a property in Sindel and the property out in the country. Um, so that's so the wills form part of the probate file. Common Law Judge Justice McMillan. Recently we had one where the the testator left the sum of $200,000 for the purpose of building a family crypt in another country, enough to fit 20 bodies in it. And of course everyone mostly was living here from his immediate family and uh, the more distant family in the, in the country overseas were not interested in being put into the crypt. And the question was whether that was a valid gift. It certainly wasn't charitable. And what to do with the, the 200000 It was determined that it was not a charitable gift and it was not a trust and the, the, the gift failed. So then uh, it went into the residue of the estate to be divided amongst the residuary beneficiaries. You must see the, perhaps the worst and best of families. Indeed, I do. Often um, disputes within families arise only after death and... Um, you can see people are either angry or upset and then there's a challenge to the will. It's a process, I think, that uh, the difficulty from the court's point of view is people are remembering from their purpose. So sometimes the oral evidence is not that convincing and so what the court must do as best as it can is try and find contemporaneous evidence about matters. So if someone comes along and says that uh, my parents said to me I could have this farm if I worked here with for no or little money 30 years ago, that causes grave difficulties in terms of the family dynamics. There are very sad cases, but once I think that uh, everyone gets together, they can often solve them, but sometimes it's a process depending on how willing they are to resolve it. So what would your advice be to someone who is about to prepare their will? I think it's most important to have a will and um, to be clear and also... Um, perhaps to sit down with the family members and discuss it while they're alive rather than when the the fighting starts afterwards. That might not resolve it, but it does help to have have a discussion so that people aren't caught by surprise. You often hear people will say, oh, the deceased said this or that, and someone else says it said something different, but 
Um, if someone's being pestered about how their estate should be left, then sometimes people will say, yes, I've done that, when they haven't, just to get the person off their back. But it is a hard conversation to have within your family if you've got a lot of dysfunction. Another section here manages money which comes into court. This could be money from other courts, compensation payouts, money from wills and so on. Sometimes people are assessed as not having the capacity to manage money which they have been awarded. This could be because of a mental injury or the person is under 18 years of age. That's where funds in court steps in. This means the court has an ongoing role in looking after some of the most vulnerable people in society. My name's John Eftham. I'm an associate judge with the uh, Supreme Court of Victoria and I'm also the senior master of funds in court. So what do we call you? John. Whenever somebody asks me what do we call you, Your Honour, I say John. But in court it's, it's uh, Your Honour and in funds in court it's senior master. Yes, funds do come into court. They come into court for people that are under a disability or infants or that can't manage their own affairs and need their affairs to be looked after. And we exercise what's known as a parents' patriarch jurisdiction. And it's been part of this court since its establishment. If a person has money paid into a court, what happens then is, for example, they might need to um, purchase something which will help their rehabilitation or purchase something for their needs, like maybe even a television set. They might be homeless and they need rent. If we have their money, we'll apply it to that. If it's something like, uh, look, I want to go to um, Antarctica and live there, and we know the person can't, of course we won't make that order. And we're trying to keep their money go as long as we can to make sure they're okay. Funds in Court dates back to 1867, although it was then called something completely different. Joanne Boyd again. Well... The funds in court started off with the rather unfortunate line, Master in Lunacy, and that was from the Lunacy Act of 1867. How did the Supreme Court end up taking responsibility? I think partly because it was about money. It was equity and things like that, and because in one sense the Supreme Court also had feelers right through the, the colony. So it was important to think about how can we look after people. And this is still the primary consideration of funds in court, providing sound investments at low cost. But it goes further than just looking after money. John F. them. A lot of these people have an acquired brain injury and they're easy targets. You know, they might have a million dollars and somebody might get hold of their money and waste it. And we have our trust officers. They have a great relationship with these people. Our trust officers stay there for years. They get to know these people by first name basis. They look after them. They need help. It's, and it's a supported decision making. We don't dominate these people. We want to know what they want. They get, they get a right to be heard. Roughly how many people's money would you be managing at the moment? Oh, about 6000 Do you have any idea of like, how much money that is? Uh, well, well, the assets we have are about $2 billion. Not million, billion. What sort of situation would you envisage where someone was awarded a large sum of money? Well, it must seem to be in medical negligence cases. For example, there's a baby about to be born and the doctor does the wrong thing and the baby gets... Uh, lack of oxygen to the brain and then uh, in a wheelchair the rest of life, peg, fed, can't talk properly. You get millions, five, six, seven million. We've seen up to about $10 million awards uh, for those sorts of cases. There are other cases where people are hit by a truck when they're crossing the road or something. They might get a million or two. We have a lot of large awards, but we have a lot of small awards. For example, we've got about one or 2,000 people from victims of crime. They don't get large awards. But the important thing that funds in court does, it doesn't matter if you've got $10 million or three or 4000 at the minimum, you'll still be looked at, do you need the money? What's it going to go to? Tell us what you want. 
and we'll, we'll deal with each case by case. Just from a financial perspective, what's the benefit of having your money managed by you and not a private investment firm? Just recently, I, I asked one of our investment advisors, a company that we actually pay some money to to, to advise us. They looked at 98 organisations. Guess who had the cheapest administration cost? It was us. Didn't surprise me. It's about 0.56 of a percent. No one can compete with that. That's the first issue. The second issue, the orders are made by the court. They're made for the benefit of those people. And because of the parents' patriarch jurisdiction, we have to act in their interests. We try to make sure they don't get ripped off by all sorts of people. We buy houses if a house is needed. The beneficiary might have had a medical negligence case. Could we have a house for the beneficiary? They've got to live somewhere. Yes, we'll pay it. We get the house. We make sure that there are proper items in the house like support so the person, the beneficiary won't fall over, ramps when they need it, if they need ramps. So we do all that sort of things. Cars, we get cars for beneficiaries, particularly if they need modifications. We try to look after them, we, we see what their needs are. But once someone has hold of their money, after all it's their money, how does the court protect these funds? Well, you, you take it into account because if a person says, can, I, can you give me $300, I want to buy some clothing, and we know they've got a gambling addiction, well, you want the receipts. Yeah, get the clothing, get the receipts, send them in. If you know they've got the gambling addiction and you believe the money will go to gambling, you've got to be very careful. Everything is on a case-by-case basis, and including drugs. That's a real worry. We sometimes send a client in the liaison offices to have a look at people who might be on drugs, and we try to call uh, the health departments and all those departments to go in and have a look at them and see if they can help them. We're the custodian of their money, but we, when we see things wrong, we advise people, we, we try to get people care and those sorts of things to help them. There's a wonderful letter from oh, the turn of the century, the 19th into the 20th century, and this lady writing saying, can I please have some money for my um, son's um, new coat? We're going to come down to Melbourne to visit. And because she was a widow and her estate was being managed by the funds in court, or what was the forerunner of the funds, what we now call funds in court. Did she get the coat? Yes, they did get the coat. It was It's a gorgeous letter, yes. Cases at the Supreme Court can be hugely complicated and require thorough, methodical consideration. This can mean a trial can go on for months, but there's one place here where things move fast, because they have to. It's called the Practice Court. Oh, the Practice Court is a court where a judge who's on duty hears urgent applications. It's usually held in Court 10. Justice Richards is a judge in the Common Law Division. Most days in this job you come into work with a pretty fair idea of what's going to happen in your day, but when you're sitting in the practice court you can have no idea what you'll be doing at the end of the day or how the day's going to work out. It can be anything from an appeal from the Children's Court involving a decision of that court made about the protection of a child to an injunction application in an industrial dispute about a picket line to an application for a freezing order made by an employer who's discovered that an employee has been helping themselves to the employer's assets or an application for a restraining order made by the police to freeze what are thought to be proceeds of crime. So it's a, it's a hugely diverse jurisdiction and always very interesting. The practice court operates all year, around the clock, with everything from two to 15 matters every week. Yeah, hi, my name's Laura and I'm the practice court coordinator for the Common Law Division. 
The practice court is designed to deal with anything urgent or injunctive that may occur in new cases or cases already before the court. It's a very reactive court, so it's when matters occur quite urgently that need to be dealt with, often to do with the preserving a party's rights to do something during a trial process. There is a judge that is available 24-7. There is the urgence number should something be required outside of the normal court hours. The matters that do arise outside of court hours are quite sensitive in nature, uh, often to do with either medical treatment, the provision of or the non-provision of medical treatment, also any appeals regarding uh, the family division of the children's court where custody of minors may come into question and there's concerns about uh, safety or um, care. We also have injunctions against uh, house auctions, for example, that are scheduled for a Saturday morning. So you tell me, where do you see value? Where perhaps a lender has repossessed a house due to a breach and there's been a refinance agreement that then can swoop in and stop the auction from happening. Medical cases can cover the provision of medical treatment where an individual has decided due to religious or other reasons to not undergo certain medical treatment and the hospital thinks that that would be uh, detrimental. Another example of where a medical um, determination or court determination will be required for medical procedure will be where there is a um, soon-to-be-deceased individual, usually male, on life support and his wife or partner will like to extract his sperm for the potential use later down the track in an IVF proceeding. The hospitals will often require a court order allowing them to make such an extraction through medical procedures. Uh, Importantly, that does not uh, necessarily allow the individual to automatically use the product and that would be the subject of a later court dispute. Have you had many of those? There's on average one every three to six months or so, so I think I've seen about four or five in the last 18 months. Justice Richards heard a high-profile case towards the end of last year, one which needed a resolution before the weekend. Uh, So I was the judge in the practice court in the week before the state election in 2018, and The week before that, a Liberal candidate had been um, quite suddenly disendorsed um, over some um, video material that uh, appeared on social media. And there were then questions about what should happen to the ballot papers that had her name printed on them, um, because pre-polling had already started, and what should happen to how to vote cards that had her name printed on them in a way that could suggest that she was an endorsed Liberal candidate. So those two applications came into the practice court very quickly. One was an application to review a decision of the Electoral Commissioner to keep the ballot paper as it was printed, and the other was an appeal from VCAT, um, where VCAT had held that some of the how-to-vote cards that the Liberal Party had registered were misleading and deceptive and so they couldn't be used. So I I think I heard one of those matters on a Tuesday 
and another on a Wednesday afternoon. They're sort of one after the other. And the election was due to happen on the Saturday. So clearly an answer was needed very quickly and I was able to decide each matter overnight. The decision in the end was that the ballot papers had to stay the same because that is that was the effect of the provisions in the Electoral Act, that once nominations have closed, the content of the ballot paper is fixed, but that the how-to-vote cards that indicated that this candidate was still the endorsed Liberal candidate were misleading and deceptive and that VCAT was correct to make that finding and that they could not be used. And after I delivered that decision, the Liberal Party appealed it to the Court of Appeal and they had a decision that same day. And in the practice court, the least complicated decisions can sometimes be the toughest. I have found the hardest decisions to make are ones where a person or sometimes a family is about to be evicted from the place where they're living, their home, either because they've defaulted on their mortgage and the mortgagee has is about to execute a warrant for possession and they've got the order that um, that person should be uh, removed from the property and again the sheriff's about to go and execute it. Usually it's pretty clear that you know the bank is entitled to possess the property, that the mortgagor's unable to service their loan, that really you'd just be delaying the inevitable but when you're faced with someone who says well look I don't have anywhere to go and if you just give me two more weeks, I'll be able to turn this all around. It's, it's a very difficult decision to make. So in some ways, they're the simplest decisions because the law's not very complicated, but they're very hard judgment calls to make and you need to make them quickly. The other jurisdiction here, which has a lion's share of the workload, but receives little attention, is the commercial court. Principal Judge Justice Reardon. Members of the public see the Supreme Court and they think about the crime and the criminal division and obviously that is the area where most people are interested but in fact it's the smallest division of the trial courts. Uh, The largest division is the commercial court uh, which just shades out the common law division. A lot of our cases tend to be what I would call partnership disputes really. They're people who run businesses and that disputes within the business have led to the parties falling out. That's just parties who can no longer get on, but families, particularly wealthy families, there are families who have got business interests and they fall out and so they bring proceedings and those proceedings can be very bitter. The familial relationship gives a, a whole different dimension to it and they can go back over many years, 30 years of issues uh, between the family that we can have being litigated in this court. One that's not long gone involved a couple, reasonably elderly couple, who got lucky and their very little farmlet all of a sudden found itself in the middle of a a development area and so became worth $10 million. They ended up litigating in this court such that the last I heard, I think, at the end of the litigation, they were bankrupted. That must be frustrating for you to watch. It's excruciating to watch. And in that particular instance, I said things very directly from the bench about the ludicrous nature 
of real people who couldn't afford litigation giving up a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but it would appear that the parties were completely unable to understand that there were risks that things may not go well for them. And then there's disputes from the big end of town. Well, of course, the big corporates, the Leviathans, do come to our court because our jurisdiction is unlimited and it's those sorts of institutions that can afford to run litigation for a long time that we have to be very mindful of. For two reasons, it's a bad idea for them to run long disputes in the court. The first is is that it takes up the resources of our court. We can have a judge not available for any other cases for 12 months while they run a large trial. And the second reason is that whilst they're running the litigation, they're not getting on with commerce. And the business community is much better off by us getting the litigation resolved quickly and getting them back to doing what they're doing, which is running their businesses. And what happens in the commercial court reflects the type of commerce which is happening in the community. There's a lot of construction in Victoria and construction inevitably involves disputation. At the moment, there's a lot of of litigation arising from the fact that the cladding is being determined to be too dangerous and therefore there are large claims brought by owners of buildings, large buildings, that have had to be reclad because of the recent concerns about the flammability of cladding. One issue which is coming to the commercial court in increasing numbers is Phoenix companies. Classically, the creditors are complaining that what happened was that they were owed large amounts of money um, by a corporation and all of a sudden the corporation came to an end and precisely the same business is now being run by a new company who, surprisingly enough, appears to be owned by the same people who's owned the old company, usually with all of the assets of the old company. And that's what's called a phoenix company. The new company rises from the ashes of the old company. And that's a frequent problem or frequent complaint. It's the source of a lot of litigation because the creditors are often not very pleased with that. How do you manage a case when both parties are and not willing to give any ground? Often that's the responsibility of the mediator, and we have mediators within the court who will accept a referral from a judge and attempt to resolve between those parties who aren't prepared to give any ground. The key, of course, is to get the parties themselves in the room and often to bypass the lawyers, and that's the way we try to get parties to think about not only what will a successful result in the court look like, but also what an unsuccessful result in the court will look like. This brings us to mediation, where a lot of effort is put into not going to trial. This also happens within the Supreme Court. When a judge refers a case for mediation, it lands on the desk of someone like uh, Judicial Registrar Daniel Caparale or Associate Justice Jamie Wood. Referrals for mediation can come from all divisions of the court. So that includes Common Law Division, Commercial Court, Court of Appeal. Any matter can be referred to mediation. On average, we would do probably about 50 a month, so we're pretty busy. I suppose the traditional view of a court was its function was to decide cases in accordance with law, but the reality is that most cases don't go to judgment. 
So if, say, 90% of cases settle prior to, the, to that, uh, there's a responsibility to try and manage those cases so they settle earlier. It saves the, the parties money and it saves the court resources. A typical mediation session where the people arrive and the judicial mediators of this court will put the parties in separate rooms initially and speak to them and go through with them a few of the rules that attach themselves to mediations and what the process might look like. Usually then the parties will get in the same room together and we'll have a joint session where each party will put their case and anything else they want to talk about and then we usually split after that back into private sessions where, where parties go back into their private rooms and take on board the things that they've learnt perhaps for the first time in the joint session and then you really start talking about, well, how can the matter resolve? It's actually quite a creative process. Mm. The role of a judge in hearing a case is quite narrow. They get to hear the evidence, gets addressed, they get addressed on the law and they make a decision. Usually somebody wins and somebody loses. Um, in mediation, we try and identify people's underlying interests their legal position might be, you know, I won $100,000 and I'm going to win and this is why. The reality is that, um, particularly in family um, disputes about wills or family matters dressed up as company disputes, if you win, it might not be in your interest to win because it will destroy the relationship forever. Even losing, you'll go bankrupt, but even winning, it might not be in your interest to win that particular case at that time. At the end of the process, you end up with a terms of settlement which you wouldn't get from an outcome from a judge. There's a time frame in there, there's, there's an apology, there's, there's instalment payments, uh, it's confidential so there's no judgement on the internet forever for the relatives to read. There's a whole range of interests which can be achieved out of a mediated settlement which you wouldn't get from a judge. One that I did recently between a bank and the customer of the bank which was really over money but which turned out into a mediation about the ongoing relationship between the bank and the customer so and that was sort of typical of many mediations where it starts off really as perhaps just an argument or a dispute over an amount of money but then turns into a discussion and a negotiation about an ongoing relationship and if we settle the dispute can we still have an ongoing relationship? A mediation session will usually run all day, often late into the night. About 70% of mediations are resolved in the first day. Many also resolve after mediation, but before the trial. But for mediation to work, the legal profession has to switch modes. Traditionally, lawyers are very comfortable being in, in gladiator mode as to we're going to win and this is why we're going to win and it's an adversarial process. We rely a lot on the profession to switch modes in mediation and become problem solvers, generating options for settlement, thrashing around ideas and being very aware of their clients' real interests, underlying interests, not their strict legal position. So do you get the impression that people are more satisfied after settling through mediation rather than than having a win? (laughs) That's a good question. Many people leave mediations not happy, even if the matter settles, but I think if they're not immediately satisfied with a settlement at mediation, I think they become satisfied very quickly soon after um, because they get rid of the litigation. Everybody's got to be a little bit unhappy because they're compromising and in, in reality, if they, have a, if they have a hand in fashioning the result, they're much more likely to, to comply with it. Gertie's Law is produced by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Now, don't forget, we're still taking questions for judges for a later episode. 
So send them in to Gertie at subcourt, S-U-P-C-O-U-R-T, dot vic, dot gov, dot au. And feedback on Gertie's Law is always welcome, so rate and review us wherever you can. <laughs>